When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the Who Put an Asterisk in My Shit edition. On the show with me today is an author as wily as his protagonist. Both go by pseudonyms and both can move shit. Jackson Ford, a.k.a. Rob Bofford, can write and sell a shitload of books, while Tegan Frost, a.k.a. Emily Jameson, can move shit with her mind. And I apologize for saying the word shit so much, but when you're talking about a series of books that start with the girl who can move shit with her mind, and that's followed by random shit flying through the air, and now we have most recently its third installment, The Eye of the Shitstorm, well... The S-word is hard to avoid. With me now to explain why I'm saying shit so much when the covers of his books bleep the word with an asterisk is Jackson Ford himself, or Rob Bofford himself, from his home in Vancouver. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. It's great to be here. In a way, the titles kind of say it all. Tegan Frost is a woman who can move stuff. She has superhuman powers, but in so many ways, she's not a superhero. You know, she doesn't wear a special onesie or have special armor or a fancy vehicle with her cool logo on it or even have cool tech. And she didn't get her superpower by an accident or because she's from another planet or a member of a special race of people who live on their own island somewhere. And yet she does have psychokinesis, which qualifies as a superpower. Could you tell our listeners about Tegan and how she is and isn't like the average run-of-the-mill superhero? So you got that a little wrong. She she does have a cool vehicle. She has a uh, black Jeep Wrangler that she calls the Batmobile. You know, it's perfect. No, Tegan is is not um, a typical superhero because she 
rather resents having her ability, the ability to to move things with her mind. Um, she was genetically engineered by her parents to have this ability. She's had it her whole life, and it's been nothing but an imposition. She would much rather uh, learn how to cook, be a professional chef, and own her own restaurant. But no, she has to work for the government doing black bag jobs and stuff that she'd really rather not get involved with. And so, no, she's not a typical superhero. Her ability has essentially forced her into a life she has absolutely no desire to be a part of. You touched on, I guess, what her motivation is for using her magic. The government, uh, she has a handler who is essentially blackmailing her, making her use her power to help them do whatever tasks they require in the interests of whatever the government deems good, whatever their project is, investigating a crime or an ill doer in their mind. And if she doesn't, the threat is that they'll lock her up, experiment on her, cut her open to figure out how she works. So it's kind of a negative motivation. She isn't really using her power to do good, at least in the beginning, that's not her motivation when we first meet her in the first book. So could you talk a little bit about what drives her and keeps her going? Tegan loves people. This is the thing I've come to understand about her over the course of three, now four books. There's a fourth one coming next year. She loves people. She likes making them happy. She likes working with them. She loves everything about them. So although she is essentially being blackmailed into doing whatever jobs the government wants her to do, she still manages to have a very rich and a very full and a very interesting life. And that's kind of what drives her. That's what keeps her going. She's got this hope that maybe she can change things around. Maybe this isn't going to last forever and she will get to live a normal life and, you know, just meet as many cool people as possible. That's really kind of the core of her as a character. There's one other reason she doesn't like her psychokinesis and it's because it's really hard to have sex. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering when you were going to bring that up. I was thinking both it's a challenge for you because it makes the romantic plot lines a little stressed, like it adds an extra strain to them. But maybe you could just explain to our listeners, why is it hard for her to have sex? When Tegan orgasms, she loses complete control of her power, of her ability. So things just go flying. So if she's in someone's bedroom, that person's bedroom is getting wrecked. So although she has had sex before and she has orgasmed before, she uh, managed to do it uh, in a forest where there was because um, the one kind of quirk about her ability is that she cannot manipulate organic matter. If it's inorganic, it's all good, but organic matter, like she can't pick you up and throw you across the room. That's not going to happen. So she has had sex before. She had it in the forest where there was no um, inorganic matter around to kind of hurt anybody, but it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't a good experience for her. And so, yeah, it's, it's a massive challenge for her to have romantic relationships because she has to keep a very tight lid on her sexuality, which she is very frustrated about. And although it's something I haven't explored in depth in the series, it's going to be something that if, as the series goes on, I'm going to pay more and more attention to. Let's just pause for a moment and talk about the titles. So the series is called The Frost Files, but you could have called it the SH Asterix T Files, which is the word that appears on all the covers. Where did the idea for the title come from? Was it was it a no-brainer? Like, yeah, let's do this because this will get everyone's attention and it'll be really cool and people won't be able to resist picking it up? Or was there pushback from people in the marketing department at Orbit who might be worried that people will be offended? I just wonder behind the scenes, like what kind of conversation you had early on about this? Behind the scenes, this is very simple. I suck at titles. I'm not even going to tell you the title, the original title I put forward because it was just trash. 
and Orbit suggested the girl who could move shit with her mind. The publishers suggested this, and I have never said yes so quickly. I was like, that is perfect. That sums up exactly what the series is. That's exactly what I what I want it to be viewed as. Like, it was just perfect. I, I work with people in Orbit who are immensely smart and know how to capture attention and know how to sum up a book. So when it comes to titles, like often I'll just... I will just go with their suggestions because I know I'll never be able to come up with a better one in a million years. And in this case, they just absolutely nailed it. So no, there was no pushback in any way, shape or form. The second they had that title, we were all on board. I was certainly like, yeah, this is the one. I don't feel like that long ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, it would have been the opposite. Maybe you would have suggested it and they would have said, no, 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 we can't do that. I did know someone maybe 20 years ago, who was writing a book or wanted to title their book something like How to Suck Up Without Fucking Up or something. But it was like a, How to Do Well in Your Job. I, I, I don't know if the book ever got published or what it's called. But but the publisher was like, no way, no way, we couldn't do that. And they neutered the title, whatever it was, and they were very disappointed. Anyway, yeah. interesting. It's 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 like, you're right, it's only become sort of accepted i guess in the past five or ten years i think it i think the guy who started it was mark manson he wrote a book called unfuck yourself uh, obviously with the asterisk in place apparently apparently if you put an asterisk there it's acceptable we all know what the word is but you can't actually write it it's a little weird i don't really understand but either way over the past sort of five years things have changed which i think is hugely positive you know with the exception of things like racial and sexual slurs i don't believe any word should be off limits i, I i'm a very strong believer in normalizing swear words and curse words so this is a positive development. I hope it, I hope it continues. I hope in the, in the next few years we see the removal of the asterisk of people going, you know what, this is common sense. Everybody knows what the word is. Let's just put it out there. We also had a president who used that word to describe other countries. So I wonder if that had anything to do with that. Oh, I hope not. Newspapers wouldn't put that word in print. They would have just said, used a slur. But when the president uses it, they have to quote him. And they started, it started appearing in newspapers. I never thought I'd say this before, but thanks, Donald Trump. I got you to say it. Something you never would have said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> While we're talking for a moment about the marketing part of a book and the non-literary parts, let me ask you about another feature of the book. You know, it's a place where imagination and marketing intersect. It's your choice of a pseudonym and why, after having written quite a few books yourself under the name, I mean yourself, <laughs> that's not what I meant. After having written quite a few books under your real name, science fiction books, Rob Bofford, why did you decide to use a pseudonym? So there are a couple of reasons. The first one was that it was a completely new genre. And I had a conversation with my agent and the publishers, and we all decided since it was a completely new genre, it might be better to go into it with a completely new name. The second reason is just a kind of very pragmatic one. Publishers will get a lot more excited about the first Jackson Ford book than they will about the fifth Rob Buffard book. I, I'll admit I was very resistant to using a pseudonym at first. You know, I had this this nightmare of sort of having multiple social media profiles, and I can barely manage one social media profile. So it was giving me the screaming heebie-jeebies. But they made me come around. They said, listen, you can pick your pseudonym. We won't force one on you. Pick one you like. And it's worked out really, really well. It was especially interesting because we didn't reveal who Jackson Ford was at first. So there was a period of about a year where – Everybody was kind of speculating, I say everybody, people online were speculating about who this Jackson Ford dude was. And there were some really fun guesses as to who he might be. And so I got to kind of sit there in the background and watch this build and go like, hey, hey, hey I have a secret. It was wonderful. But then did you not do any interviews? Was that a different kind of marketing challenge? 
Oh, man. I think I did do a few interviews for the first book when the pseudonym was still, when my real name was still a secret. I, I just, as far as I know, I don't think those interviews revealed my real name. They certainly weren't audio interviews. They were, I didn't do any podcast interviews, for example. I think they were in print and they just didn't reveal my real name. When you said it was a new genre, you meant for yourself it was a new genre because you'd been writing science fiction books before and now you're kind of going into on Earth maybe somewhat supernatural, thriller, comedic. I'm not actually sure what genre this is. You and, you and me both, brother. I still don't know how to describe these books. People describe them as urban fantasy, and I've gone, yeah, kind of. If you squint, they've described them as like a superhero fantasy. I'm like, yeah, okay, that kind of fits. They don't really have a particular genre to put them into. I mean, I, I think of them as thrillers, I guess. But yeah, it's they, they don't really have a genre. One of the major storylines, we can go away from the marketing, we'll toggle back and forth, just like Tegan does in going across the city from one crisis <laughs> to the next. So one of the major storylines that is consistent throughout the series is that Tegan isn't the only person with special superpowers. She's the only one with her superpowers, but there are other people with other superpowers. She knew about her siblings, because her parents are the ones who apparently invented this. But the last time she saw them, they were getting burnt up in a fire. And then in the first book, there's a grown-up who has superpowers. And then books two and three, there are children. And there's this push-pull in the plot, because she wants to befriend and understand herself through these other people. But more often than not, although there are some exceptions, these others are opposed to her. She's at cross purposes with them. So rather than be allied with them, as might be in some other kind of superhero story where they're all doing good together, she's fighting them. And she has to rely on the ordinary people. She has to rely on ordinary humans. And one would think they couldn't help her when she has these incredible powers to lift and move anything. And, and she gets better and better at it as the series goes on. She, her range extends, her power to do things extends. But inevitably, she needs the help of ordinary people. So it's an interesting notion, I think, that emerges that you don't need to be superhuman to save lives and do good. And anyway, I've done a lot of talking. What notions are you exploring there about ordinary versus superhuman and needing support and help? You know, it's rare for me, having now written these books for two or three years, more longer, four years, it's rare for me to to hear a perspective on them that I haven't come across before. But I don't believe I've come across that one before. The idea of Tegan doesn't have other superpowered individuals to depend on. She just has ordinary people. But that's absolutely true. Did I do that intentionally? I don't think so. That's not what I had in mind. But now that you mention it, yes, that's completely accurate. And my response to that is Tegan has this ability and she's getting and she gets stronger and stronger over the course of the books. But that doesn't necessarily make her smarter. That doesn't give her skills to necessarily navigate through certain parts of society. She's still a, tw a 23 year old young woman with all the, the immaturity that comes with and all the impulsiveness that's co that comes with. So there are some situations that cannot be solved by just throwing the biggest and most damaging object you can find at it. Sometimes you need the services of a logistics man, like her friend Paul, who can get all the details right. Or you need the contacts 
and and deep underground network of someone like her friend Annie, or the hacking skills of of Reggie, who's the hacker in her crew. Uh, you know, you you need to if she's going to kind of succeed, she needs to surround herself with people who do the things she cannot do. Because although she has this amazing ability, there is so much that she can't do. Although she can still bake the best chocolate chip cookies in Los Angeles. No one can touch her on that. That's her real superpower. But yeah, it's it, this is a series that wouldn't work if she was on her own. If it was Tegan against the world, she'd probably die. It's that simple. Like, she needs a, a crew around her. And it must be pointed out, so do the bad guys who face who face off against her. In the second book, um, you mentioned that uh, one of the, there's a there's a superpowered kid. He's scary as hell. His name is Matthew, and he has the ability to move Earth and cause earthquakes, which would be fine, except he is a total sociopath. He's a four-year-old sociopath. Now, that was very interesting because, okay, it's cool to have a four-year-old sociopath, but if you're just a little four-year-old kid wandering around... You're not going to be able to get anywhere. You can't even walk down, walk down the street and buy a hot dog. Like you need an adult. And so Matthew is accompanied by his his mother, Amber, who is way out of her depth and is torn between her love for her son and the horror she feels at what her son is doing. And, and you know, every kind of superpowered individual in the series has a support network. They have people they work with. I mean, even Leo, the little kid in the third book, has his dad who he relies on to, to help him out. So, yeah, it's it's a consistent theme throughout the series. And as I said, I hadn't really considered it that way. So you've made me look at it in, in a new light. So nice one. So the books are set in Los Angeles and they're full of famous spots and landmarks and... Yet you are from South Africa and you live in Vancouver. So what drew you to L.A. for the setting of the story? OK, so a little bit of background. Yeah, I'm from South Africa. I lived in the U.K. for a while. I now live in Canada and I've traveled a lot, spent a lot of money on traveling. Um, and I've spent quite a bit of time in Los Angeles. I was there for a journalism fellowship in 2013 for a while, which is great. I've been back many times, got quite a few friends in the city. I love Los Angeles. It it reminds me a lot of Johannesburg, where I'm from. And when we were knocking around where to to set the the Frost Files, because it was something I talked about a lot with my publisher of where you know I, I've got this cool idea, but where could we set it? And initially they said, well, could you set it in a sort of a not a small town, but not a big city either? And I went, well, where can I put that? Where can I put? Oh, I know, I'll set it in Vancouver. And they went, eh, will you though? Because Vancouver's kind of boring. And I went, yeah, okay, it is fine. Um, uh, what about Los Angeles? It's a big city, but and they went, yep, that's cool. Do Los Angeles. And from the moment I started writing these books, it just felt right. Like it felt like a natural fit. There's so much about LA that casual visitors don't see. It's a city with such beautiful hidden depths. And so to have this chance to explore parts of the city that tourists don't always get to, to, to talk about places that I love and to talk about the elements of the city that I really enjoy, that was a blessing, man. And the fact that I've been able to do it now for, for three, soon to be four books has just been magical. Like getting to talk about places like the Watts Towers, for example, where hardly anybody goes, even though they're incredible. Yeah, it's 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 so much fun. I, you know, there's a little cliche about how, you know, the city is its own character, the whole sex in the city thing. And, you know, I, I haven't seen that expressed in reviews of these books, but I do genuinely feel like that. Like L.A. is a character and I have to represent that character to the best of my ability. I have to do justice to L.A. and the people who live there. I want someone who lives in the city to be able to pick up these books, read it and go, this dude knows what he's talking about. 
Did you feel any particular challenges in terms of representing such a diverse cast of protagonists, including Tegan, who is a different gender than yourself, and then the diverse colleagues she has, Latinx, Black, there's more, I'm sure. I, I mean, you don't, you don't make a point of, uh, so I'm not even 100% sure what everyone's background is. Yeah, I've got to be very careful how I answer this question. But I'll try answer it honestly. There's no escaping the fact that I am a straight white dude writing a book where the main character is a woman and who works with people who are vastly different in ethnicity, in gender to, to myself. And so, yes, it was a challenge. And I looked at this and I thought, OK, well, I'm, I want to write it like this. I want to have a diverse cast. That's very important to me. And there's a good chance that I might screw up a few things like I might get a few things wrong, and readers have always pointed out where I've got things wrong. But I just thought, look, the way to approach this is to write, just write these characters as honestly as possible. Write them as human beings. I'm never going to shy away from the fact that Reggie is disabled, or Annie is Latinx, or Carlos is, is, is Mexican. I'm never going to shy away from these things, but I'm going to write these characters as honestly and as warmly, warmly and accurately as I can. And if I screw up, I screw up. So be it. But judging from the reaction from my re reactions from my readers, it's it's come out okay. It's an approach that I was a little bit nervous about, but it seems to have worked out all right. I'm definitely not claiming that this is the only way to do it, and that there's no better way to do it. I'm I'm guessing that if I really went out of my way and and talked to to individuals in these communities, that the books would be more representative. But in terms of crafting the story and getting the books to where they are now, I'm happy with how it turned out, and I think my readers are as well. I understand why this can be a challenge, because there's a lot of concern about representation. And yet, I'm completely empathetic to the idea of wanting a diverse world. And so any one person is just one person. And if you're going to have more than one person who isn't exactly like you in a book, you have to stretch. Yeah, for me, it was writing a book with a diverse cast. I would rather do it and get a few things wrong than completely avoid it. Because, yeah, that's that's anathema to me. I couldn't even imagine writing a book populated by straight white males. I barely know how to think as a straight white male. So, you know, I would much rather read, like write a book that doesn't get it completely right, but still makes a hell of a good effort than completely shy away from the whole thing. So is it true that there's going to be a TV series or something like that is in the works? Uh, it has been optioned for TV. Uh, which means that the production company who has made this deal with me is now looking for uh, someone to pick up the TV show like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or any one of the number of cable TV channels in the States. And if they find somebody who says, yes, we would like a pilot episode, then it will become a TV series, which would be great. I, you know, this is a deal that, you know, I did very little work for. My film agent worked her backside off for it, but I just sat here and took a couple phone calls and said, yay, when the money arrived, that's pretty much it. I would absolutely love it if it, be if it you know, went the distance and became a TV series. I cannot guarantee it will happen. I have absolutely no, nothing to do in the process, but the people who are responsible for pushing this, uh, Heather Caden, who did uh, Alias and Fringe, and Alex Kurtzman, who did Transformers, like, I trust these people. It's in good hands. So... You know, I have every expectation that they'll they'll get it through to the finish line. I'm as excited as you are, man. I want to see I want to see what they do with it. When you negotiate something like that, do you ask for any kind of role whatsoever, or are you just 
going to be like all of us. And well, except you get invited to the premiere and probably can visit the filming. But do you have a say in any decisions along the way or any of the writing or any of it? You know, I imagine that if I'd really felt strongly about it, my agents could have pushed for that. But I definitely never felt an urge to to write any of the series to write any of the scripts or teleplays. I've never written the script before in my entire life. I've been strictly a, a prose, prose author. And for me to, to say, oh, it's, you know, I created this character, so I must write the scripts. What the hell do I know about making a TV show? I know nothing. Like, no, my, you know, my sole criteria was I wanted to find somebody who would be respectful of the characters that I made and respectful of, of the world that I built. I would absolutely love to visit the the set if, if one ever exists. I think I would ask very nicely to be like murder victim number seven or something like, just like, let me get my screen actors guild card guys. Like, let me get in there. And I'd love to be invited to the premiere. If those I mean, do, do TV shows even have premieres, I don't know, but like, yeah, I'd love to be involved in, in that kind of very loose capacity. But look, the way I see it is the books exist as they are. They have the storylines that I've worked very hard on. And the TV series can go in any direction it wants. Like if they want to explore completely different storylines, have at it, guys. It's not going to alter the, the stories that are in the books. It's not going to change the vision that I have for the series. I, I, as I said, I'm really excited to see what they do with it. I'm very creatively hands off by design. So if you could choose to be the murder victim who is killed with a rebar shoved through your chest or crushed by a highway bridge, which would you prefer? Oh, damn. Now, that's a question I've never been asked before. I'm going to go with rebar because I, I feel I feel like, it, you know, a, a crushed by a highway bridge is probably more than one victim dotted around, probably took out a few people. The rebar is like one person. It's a nice, it's an individual touch. You know, it's a special individual touch of the murderer. And I feel like to be that victim in a TV show, it'd be a privilege, you know, to have the steel rebar shot through my chest. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with steel rebar guy. All right. Excellent. I love it. Can't wait. <laughs> I think that's it. Cool, man. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You are so welcome, man. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the incisive questions. There were a couple there that I genuinely, like, that genuinely never been asked before, which is, uh, it's quite refreshing. So nice one. Thank you. I, I, I try. I've been talking to Rob Bofford, who, under the pen name Jackson Ford, recently released from Orbit the third book in the Frost Files series, The Eye of the Shitstorm. Thanks for listening. Subscribe if you don't already. Leave a lovely review if you haven't yet. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network, where Marshall Poe is editor-in-chief and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. I hope you're having a beautiful summer wherever you are.